Today we're going to be um, talking about every preacher's favorite subject, money, right? Um, actually, most of us that are real preachers, we hate talking about money, and this is the one we always avoid. Um, but this is one of the reasons why we read through books of the Bible the way that we do. One of the things I say is uh, we all have our favorite things to preach on, and um, if it was up to me, you guys would hear the same couple of sermons every week. But by preaching through books of the Bible, you just got to come up with whatever's next. So whatever's next is let's talk about money. Um, I was actually just watching some rich kid, like not rich, like, um, uh, oh, he gets a trust fund and he works at his dad's company, but like rich, like $400 million inheritance kind of rich kid. Uh, Johnson and Johnson, some kid from Johnson Johnson. He made a movie where he went around and interviewed all his stuck-up friends about money. And one of the things they were talking about is, oh, we never talk about money, rich people, right? Anyway, so I think that's kind of our culture, right? Well, we don't talk about money. Um, well, today we're going to talk about money. And the reason is because Jesus talked about money. So if you remember a couple, what was it, in December or whatever, I said, we're going to put this sermon off till January because there's a couple of things I want to change about how I wrote it. And one of the things I wanted to change was I wanted to read a couple of books. I read three books, uh, and we want, want to talk about one of them specifically. It's this book here. Um, it's by John DeGraff, David Wan, and Thomas Naylor. So the book is called Affluenza. And um, the book is kind of about U.S. culture and consumerism. And they broke the book up into three parts. So the first part of the book is the symptoms of what they call affluenza. Uh, the second is the causes and the solutions. So at the beginning, when they talk about the symptoms, um, uh, let me read to you. I didn't, did I put this in here? Yeah, yeah. This was their definition of affluenza, like on the first page of the introduction or something, you know. Um, it's a painful, contagious, socially transmitted condition of overload, debt, anxiety, and waste resulting uh, from, a dogged, uh, from a dogged in pursuit of more. Right? So this basically describes America. And they went on to, to really flesh out, like, what, is, what do they mean when they say affluenza? And so each chapter kind of had a different theme. So the first chapter was shopping fever. Right? Americans, we love to shop. Um, and uh, they used the phrase retail therapy that Melissa always jokes when she says to me, time for a little retail therapy. Anyway, um, they talked a lot about mega malls. What's the big one in Minnesota with like a roller coaster in it and stuff, right? So... What I didn't realize was I went on Amazon and just bought the cheapest version of this book. I bought version one. There's like three or four. I think they've been updating it. So now it's Amazon, right? But in the book that I read, it was, they were talking about malls. So shopping fever was the first sign. Uh, the second one was um, bankruptcy. So again, I bought an older version of the book, so I don't know about the stats. But uh, what, one of the sentences in there they said was that, you know, in the last four years, we've had more people declare bankruptcy than finish college in the United States. And I was like, whoa. And then there was, I don't think there was a footnote and I don't know where they got that number from. But I mean, even if it's close to true, like that's a lot of people declaring bankruptcy. They had a chapter called Swollen Expectations. And this is what they said. This was really interesting. They talked about comparing us to previous generations. And they said, we have a lot more stuff and a much higher material expectations than previous generations did. Everybody's house today has twice as much stuff in it. But the feeling of affluence, the experience of well-being, is no higher or perhaps even lower than previous generations. So what they said, this whole chapter was kind of comparing us to, like, the 50s. People think of the 50s kind of like this economic boom where everybody had all this stuff. And 
you know, the middle class America popped up and all this one, you know, uh, all this great stuff happened and everybody was loaded and whatever. But if you actually look at it, we have way more stuff and money and security than those guys did. But we feel less secure. We feel less satisfied by our stuff. So they really kind of got into that. It's like, um, uh, it's like a guy with uh, three Lamborghinis in his driveway thinking he's poor because his neighbor has four. Right? That's kind of what we do. We have all this stuff, but we look at our neighbors and we go, hey, that guy has more. But what they said was if we would look just even a generation before us, we would go, oh, man, I'm, this is going great. And they talked about stress in a chapter. And they talked about how Americans tend to choose money and earning over time. And that's kind of our big thing, is would you rather have time with your family or time to earn money? And we always choose time to earn money. That's like kind of, and how we almost lift that up, right? What do people say now? What's the new, like, cool thing to say? Oh, how's it going? Oh, I'm so busy, right? That's almost like a badge of honor, right? I'm so busy. The implication is I'm so busy with my job earning money because I'm an American and that's what we do, right? And I'm stressed constantly. There's no sort of balance, no sort of health. And they talked about some of those impacts that these decisions make, how it affects your family, how this affluenza affects. They got into a whole thing about how it shapes communities. Um, like, we're not individuals, right? Um, they had a chapter called The Ache for Meaning. Now, there's, um, there was a few other chapters I'm not going to talk about but, with the symptoms, but you get the idea. This one, though, The Ache for Meaning, really kind of stuck out to me. Um, they, uh, let me read you a quote from it. It says, the more Americans fill their lives with things, the more they tell psychiatrists Pastors, and this is true, I've heard this, friends and family members that they feel empty inside. So we're loading our lives with stuff. At the same time, therapy is like on, people are less and less fulfilled and less and less happy with the things, um, the things that they have. So that's the, the symptoms, the causes. What causes this? They get into that in the second part of the book. And uh, this was the weakest part of the book, I'll be honest. They were kind of all over the place. Um, I was expecting to, for them to be very hostile to the gospel so that then I can go, oh, here's what the gospel says. But when I, the first chapter um, in the causes part was called Original Sin. And I went, what? Like, I was like not expecting this, you know what I mean? <laughs> and I read it, and I mean, their chat. So basically, they explained that, they, and it, it opened with a quote from the book of First Timothy, right? And I was like, what is this happening here, right? Uh, as I read this book. But um, they basically explained that in all the monotheistic religions, the three of us, we believe that original sin is the cause. But then they very quickly move on to sort of evolutionary biology and that sort of stuff. And the conclusion they kind of come up with is um, that because we were hunter-gatherers kind of stuff, where it's the, the people that survived are the ones that were good at hoarding stuff, right? And so uh, that's what they, they say. That's the cause. We'll get into what the gospel says the cause is later. Um, and then their solution. So in their, the, the last part of the book, the last third of the book, is, talks about how do we fix this? What do we do about this? Um, one of the things they say is they talk about perspective. We, as Americans, we have to see our place in the world. I liked this quote. Americans must live simply so that others can simply live. I like that. That was a good kind of quote. Is the more you have perspective, the more that you're not going to have this sort of affluenza. Um, they talked about getting into nature and seeing sort of transcendence. Um, they had a very challenging questionnaire. Have you ever done this? Do you do that? Do you worry about this? And they said, take this questionnaire. 
Um, the book leaves you with this idea, right? Their solutions is that you can change, you can be better, you can consume less, and you can do personally more for the environment in how you behave. And the book kind of lays this burden on you. Okay, now go do it. Right? And that's how the book ends. And so we'll talk about that at the end. Now, I want to say this too before we get into the text. Um, it may be uh, super easy for us to read a book like this or talk about this sort of stuff and go, oh yeah, all those Americans out there, that's how they act. And not go, this is what happens in church too. But guys, this is totally what happens in church too, right? Like, I mean, come on. Uh, to the point where the Bible talks about this a lot, right? I'll read you two verses. Ephesians 5, um, it says, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, who is covetous, covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Or then in Colossians, put to death, therefore what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, uh, which is idolatry. Okay, look at these two lists, right, as you go back and forth. The two lists have two sides to it. Sexual stuff and money stuff, right? And like greed and covetousness, right? And we'll talk about what that is. In the, in the evangelical world, we make a huge stink about the sexual sins, don't we? Pastors get fired. Like, all, you know, this is the big, ew, it's the, the bad one, right? Don't do the sexual sins. But then it's almost like, okay, but those other ones are mostly okay. <laughs> what? Right? It's, the, it's literally just the next part of the list that Paul is talking about here in Colossians. Today, Jesus is going to take this sort of problem head on. But as we read, what I want you to see is the gospel doesn't give us surface level advice on how to go out there and do your best. Um, I think the gospel's answer is much deeper and much more profound, right? So let's take a look at what Jesus says is sort of the answer here. So we're going to start in Luke. Um, we're going to read this uh, part here in 13, starting in 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Sounds like somebody and somebody else uh, that I know, uh, right? Tell him to give me my thing, right? Okay, so somebody in the crowd is how it starts out with, interrupts Jesus' teaching, right? Jesus is in the middle of this section of teaching. And he says, tell my brother. That's probably the voice he used, I'm guessing. Um, this wasn't actually, though, an unusual request. Rabbis in this day were often called upon to, to sort of mediate Judge Judy-style family squabbles, you know? Um, and so... The situation was this. In Deuteronomy 21, we're given the rules for inheritance among the people of God. And basically, to sum up a whole complicated system, usually what happens is the older brother gets twice what everybody else gets, right? So they divide it all up that way. The older brother always gets more. And uh, the problem here, what the problem here was, we're not really told. Was the older brother cheating the younger brother? Was the younger brother cheating the old? Like, I don't know. Um, somehow they're fighting over this inheritance. And notice, though, he's not telling Jesus, hey, we're fighting over the inheritance, and we need you to be an impartial judge and come up with a decision, right? What does he do? Tell him to divide it with me, right? Jesus, side with me. That's what he tells him. I need you to be on my side, and I need you to give me money. Um, but that's not what Jesus uh, wants to do, right? He says to him, man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? So all the commentators agree that Jesus is being very harsh here in the way he calls him man um, in the original languages. It's like, come on, dude, right? That's the modern version of that, right? I don't think so, guy. Um, Jesus is not impressed with this guy. 
Um, He's in the middle of teaching on how the Holy Spirit will sustain his people, if you remember that, during persecution, when they throw you in front of the synagogues to be beaten up and everything. The Holy Spirit will tell you what to say. Some guy raises his hand. This happened in youth group when I was a youth pastor every week. I'd be teaching about something very serious, and some kid would raise his hand and ask the dumbest question I've ever heard in my life, or a really great question that just has nothing to do with whatever we're talking about. Um, that's kind of what happens here. Tell, you know, tell my brother to give me my stuff, right? And so Jesus says, who made me the judge over you? Now, Jesus is not saying this verse often gets taken completely out of the context to say, see, Jesus says he's not supposed, like, we're not supposed to judge and everybody can just do whatever they want. Um, jump forward, John 5, 22. Uh, for the father judges no one, but he has given all judgment to the son. Right? Okay, so Jesus is very clear. He's going to be the one who's going to judge the world. I mean, there's a million verses I could have pulled out. But what he's saying here is, this petty crap, this is not why I'm here. I'm not going to judge this. I don't, this is beneath me, right? I don't care about this right now. I'm doing something important in teaching my people. Um, one commentator said this. Uh, he came to bring men to God, not property to men. Right? That's what he was doing. He was in the middle of talking about the Holy Spirit, and this guy interrupts him with this question. So Jesus pauses, because Jesus, I love the verses, and they're terrifying at the same time, where it says Jesus knew in their hearts what they were thinking. Right? There's a couple of those kind of verses. Right? He knew what was going on. In this instance, Jesus knew what was going on. And so what he does is now he's going to, the whole crowd heard this guy ask this ridiculous question, totally selfish. And so Jesus says, eh, you know, pushes him in the face, stand over in the corner, face the wall. And then he turns to the crowd and he says, let me teach you about money. Everybody knows he's talking about this guy right here. (laughs) Okay, so this is what he does. Verse 15. And he said, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So Jesus, in teaching about coveting, he's implying that this is what this guy is doing, right? It's very obvious that he's talking about this guy. He's being greedy. Um, there was a, okay, a Dutch author. Okay, this is, I'm going to give this name a shot here. Jan William van de Wettering. Okay, I don't know. Um, did I put this in a quote? No, I didn't put this in the slides. But I like this quote. This is great. Um, I'm going to get this quote tattooed on my arm. He says, greed is a fat little demon with a small mouth, and whatever you feed him is not enough. I love that. A fat little demon with a small mouth, and whatever you feed him is not enough. That's what he's talking about, Jesus. Because greed is sneaky. Um, Notice how Jesus never tells his people, be on guard against adultery. Do you know why he never says that? Because when you're committing adultery, you know. It's pretty obvious, right? It's pretty hard to accidentally commit adultery. But it's really easy to let greed and coveting, which is just like wanting other people's stuff and being driven by this need to have more stuff, it's really easy to let that attitude sneak into your life. And you don't even realize that that's what's going on. In those verses in Colossians, that verse we read earlier, they call covetousness idolatry. Because subtly, uh, money and things, right? There's a word in Greek. um, What is it? I forget now. Mammon? Is that right? Is that the word? Mammon? Uh, It just means like stuff, like wealth, our kind of word for wealth, right? It's easy to let that sort of stuff become your, your God, and you don't even know that that's what happened. You go to church, you worship. John remembers to put the capo on. We sing a song, and then you hear a sermon on the book of Luke, 
right? And you're feeling good about yourself, and then you go home and you check your investment accounts the way Gollum looks at that ring. You know what I mean? <laughs> right? You open your app and you're looking at that. That's what's going on in this guy's heart. And Jesus calls him out. He doesn't say, hey, you're being a prudent saver. You know, you're doing the right thing, the smart thing. He says, dude, you are greedy and you are, your money is your God, is basically what he's saying. And so Jesus says, it doesn't make sense because your life is more than the things you own. In Greek, there's three words for life. The first word is bios, which means like biological life, how long you're alive, like breathing and heart pumping. The second word is psyche, which kind of means more like um, the value of relationships, right? Like you're, I mean, you can see where we get the word, right? Psyche, right? Psychology and all that. Uh, the third word is zoe, which is like the ideal life, the way life is supposed to be. In English, we talk about the good life, you know? Okay, so when Luke is translating what Jesus says in Aramaic into Greek to write this down, he specifically chooses that third word, the good life, the, the ideal life. Jesus says the ideal life is not the things that you own. There are, the reason is Zoe can't be measured by how much stuff you own. How sweet, how good your life is can't be measured by how much stuff you have. There are poor people who are rich with Zoe, and there are rich people who are poor with Zoe, with the good life. Um, And so Jesus says that, and so he warns the crowd Take care and be on guard. Watch out for this attitude of defining yourself and the good life by how much stuff that you have. It's not going to work, and all you're going to end up doing is worshiping something that could never live up to the hype. And so next, um, what Jesus does is he tells a parable, which is just kind of a story with a meaning, uh, to illustrate the point. He tells him this parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentiful. And he thought to himself, what should I do? For I have nowhere to store my crop. Okay, so here's the problem, the situation. This man has an overflow of crops. He has too much stuff. Um, And he doesn't have anywhere to put it all. Basically, his problem is he's too rich. Uh, He got into a startup early. They went public. He's mid-20s, worth $25 million. What do I do with the rest of my life? That movie, that video that I watched about that guy who made the movie, one of the questions he was asking all these rich kids was, are you ever going to get a job? And he interviewed one of their like dads or something who was retirement age now. And he, but he was like, oh, yeah, I've literally never worked a day in my life. You know, these like upper, upper, upper class kind of folks, right? Uh, this is this guy's problem. What do I do? I'm, I'm too rich. Remember, this is before you could just start a space company as a hobby. You know what I mean? Like, what do I do, <laughs> what do, I do with my time? Uh, In the Old Testament, the idea of generosity, I swear, God beats them over the head with this the way I beat you guys over the head with that Paps stuff. Um, uh, You know, like, it's just over and over and over again. You need to be generous, and you need to take care of other people. You know what I mean? You are not an individual. You are part of a community. Okay, and I think it's very interesting that nowhere in this guy's plan or thought does the idea come into his head, oh, I should use this overflow to help somebody else, right? That's not what he does. Look at what he does. This is his solution. He says, look, um, I'll do this. I'm going to tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. 
when I was younger, I was used to tell that joke, you know. And then I says to myself, I says, Phil, because that's what I call myself. I call myself Phil. I says, Phil, this reminds me of that, right? I says, soul, this is what we're going to do. Right? Who talks like that besides me? Anyway, he says, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to build bigger barns. I swear, the American flag should just be bigger barns on it. I don't know how that would work. But this is kind of our motto, right? This is our real creed as Americans. We need bigger barns. The ideal life is getting yourself to the point where you need to build more barns. Now, sidebar, right? I'm not trying to get political here um, and bash the United States. I'm not saying capitalism is bad, right? We have conservatives will argue capitalism is the system that has lifted the most people up ever. And then on the other side, we have people saying about, uh, yeah, but then these guys way at the top have too much. What's, how's that all work? I don't know. I took economics in high school, right? I'm not the economics guy. That's not what we're talking about. Um, if you want to know more about that, Google it. Uh, I'm not bashing American economic system here. That's not what I'm doing. Um, my point is, I think just in general, as Americans individually, this is what we do, right? Uh, I think this guy would have felt totally at home in the US. I have extra. I'm going to invest it. I'm going to put it in the bank. I'm going to buy some real estate. Um, uh, I think it's important to note this, that if this guy was an American, and he did this, most of us would probably say, he's got it together, right? This is a responsible dude, right? He's taking his overflow and he's investing it and he's saving up and he gets to retire early. And this is what he says to himself though, this is the problem. He says, I'm just gonna relax, I'm gonna eat, I'm gonna drink and I'm gonna be merry, right? Jesus is giving us a glimpse of his heart. What he's after is the easy life and this wealth allows him to do that. Um, do you guys know John Piper? I talk about him sometimes, he's this preacher. Um, in uh, Minnesota, in Minneapolis. And uh, um, in the year, what was it, 2000, I think? Isn't that that Conan O'Brien thing? In the year 2000, no, anybody know that? Anyway, um, in the year 2000, he was at a conference uh, called One Day, and he preached, John Piper did, one of the most important sermons in uh, U.S. history, I think. Because this sermon kind of launched a movement that we call the Young, Restless, and Reformed. It's not that important. But in Christian circles, this launched kind of a movement. And in that sermon, he was, he was talking to 40,000 college students. That's a lot of college students. Okay, big stadium or whatever. I think it was a field kind of thing. And if you want to Google the whole sermon, I think at some point you should. Just type in John Piper Seashells Sermon, and you'll see why in a sec. I'm going to read this to you. Um, this is just a clip, uh, like a small bit from that sermon. This is what he said. I'm not going to do. He, he is like real emotional when he preaches and he screams and he talks real quiet so that you know this is the important part. You know what I mean? All right, so I'm just going to read this the way I have it here. But this is what he says. Three weeks ago, we got word at our church that Ruby Eliason and Laura Edwards uh, had both been killed in Cameroon. Ruby was over 80, single her entire life. She poured out for one great thing, to make Jesus known among the unreached, the poor, and the sick. Laura was a widow, a medical doctor, pushing 80 years old and serving with Ruby in Cameroon. The brakes gave way, and over the cliff they go, and they're gone, both of them killed instantly. And I asked my people, was that a tragedy? Two lives, driven by one great vision, spent in unheralded service to the perishing poor for the glory of Jesus Christ. Two decades after almost all their American counterparts had retired to throw their lives away in trifles in Florida or New Mexico. No, that's not a tragedy, that's a glory. I'll tell you what a tragedy is. He says, I'll read to you from the Reader's Digest. 
what a tragedy is. In the sermon, I think he made a joke, too, about how none of these kids knew what the Reader's Digest was. But anyway, <laughs> he reads this from the Reader's Digest. Bob and Penny, they took an early retirement from their job in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler playing softball and collecting seashells. That's a tragedy. And people today are spending billions of dollars to persuade you to embrace that tragic dream. And he says, this is kind of from his intro, I think, and I get 40 minutes to plead with you, don't buy it. With all my heart, I plead with you, don't buy that dream. The American dream, a nice car, a nice house, a nice job, a nice family, a nice retirement, collecting seashells as the last chapter before you stand before the creator of the universe and give an account for what you did. Here, Lord, here it is, Lord, my seashell collection. And I've got a nice swing and look at my boat. And then he goes on. He says, don't waste your life. Don't waste it. And then based off of this sermon, he actually wrote a book called Don't Waste Your Life. That's what the guy in our story was after, the seashell collection. I'm going to eat, I'm going to drink, and I'm going to be merry. An early retirement. Well, let's see how it worked out for him. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? God calls him a fool. This is serious business when God calls somebody a fool. There are a few pastors and theologians and professors and guys that I kind of look up to. Um, smart dudes who have helped shape the way that I think. One of those guys is named John Frame. Um, he's an older dude. He wrote this massive book on the history of like Western philosophy from a Christian perspective. And I read this book. And when I read it and I finished it, I was pretty proud. Hey, this is a pretty thick book, you know? I must be pretty smart here. And I was thinking about it. And then I thought to myself, boy, if I'm smart because I read it, he must be smart because he wrote it. You know what I mean? Like, that's a smart dude. Now, imagine a guy like John Frame. I meet him at a conference or something. We have a very short conversation. And at the end of the conversation, John Frame leans into me and he goes, wow, you are really not that smart. Kind of an idiot. Turns around and walks away. <laughs> I'd be like, oh no, the smartest guy in the world just called me an idiot. I'd be freaking out, right? That's what's happening here. The wisest person in the entire universe calls this guy a fool. Right? This is not what you want to hear from the wisest person ever. You're, you're a fool. That's what he calls him. Why does he call him that? Why does he call this guy a fool? Because he put everything in these barns, and he says, this night your soul is required of you. Right? This, this is the end. You ignored the justice of God so that you could live on a boat in the Bahamas collecting seashells, and the night you bought your boat, you died. Never got to do the boat, never got the seashells. You could have given all that money away. You could have done something with it, and you decided not to. And after all of this, who's going to get your stuff? That's what he says. Um, here's the big irony. He built up all these barns so that nobody else would get any of his stuff. And now that's exactly what's going to happen. He's not going to get to keep any of it. But because he didn't give it away, he doesn't get to decide where it goes. Um, anybody in the first century would have read this and thought, oh, his kids are going to get his stuff. But by Jesus asking this question, now who's going to get all your stuff? The implication is he has no kids. And it's very complicated, like, depending on what rabbi and stuff, where this stuff would have ended up. But the idea is, he's not going to get to decide. And so, verse 21, the ending here. So the one who lays up treasure for himself is not rich towards God. And the New Living Translation puts it like this. Yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth, but not have a rich relationship with God. 
So the guy was given two choices. You can build up treasure for yourself, the affluenza, the greed, the bigger barns. You can put all your hope and money as an idol, or you can have treasure for God. Um, what does that mean exactly? Let me read you two notes. The first one is from a, the study Bible. Uh, being rich towards God means living to glorify God and investing our earthly assets that, into things that will make an eternal difference. R.C. Sproul, the late great R.C., he said, Amassing wealth towards God entails generosity towards the poor. And here's why. Because God has so identified himself in the upside-down kingdom with the poor and marginalized to the point where when you are doing things for the kingdom of God like that, where you're using your money for people who need it, for the poor and the needy and the underprivileged and the bottom of society, you're basically doing that for, for God himself. Right? Jesus talks about that. Hey, you remember when I had no shoes on and I was broke and I was hungry and you gave me something to eat? Paraphrasing. And they're like, when did we do that? You know, what did we need to do it for poor people? That's how identified with those people that God is. Right? And so when this is the choice, and this dude in our story, he made the wrong choice. Now, here's the problem, though. Talking about generosity towards the poor. That is not how I am personally wired. And you know what? It's not how you're wired either. None of us are wired like this. Human beings have always been obsessed with wealth. Plutarch, the Greek philosopher, greed never rests from the acquiring of more. Or they asked John Rockefeller, uh, you know John Rockefeller, John D. Rockefeller, the, was it steel guy maybe? Uh, one of those tycoons from back in the 1800s. How much money is enough? His answer, this was really his answer, just a little bit more. At one point, this guy was worth like a couple of percent of the entire U.S. economy. Right? This dude had a lot of money, just a little bit more. Um, I read this other book while I was prepping this sermon. It was called Brand Jesus, and he says this, To live in a consumerist world means that uh, we understand ourselves to be deeply and significantly related to what we buy and consume. And because we lack inherited stories, we are left with the burden of construction on our own sense of meaning and place in the world. By and large, we have done so with the tools they lay closest at our hands, consumer goods. So his point is, you guys know how I'm always talking about um, how the way the world works now is people think you're born with a blank slate and you create your own meaning. And he gets into this. And what he says is because that's how the way the world works, we look around and we go, okay, what can I use to define myself? Oh, stuff is the easiest way. He goes, in the ancient world, people didn't do it like this because your meaning came from your clan, your family, you inherited these stories. And we don't do that anymore. And so this is such a poor substitute. And I, um, let me read you uh, one more quote from him. Uh, getting into sort of the gospel answer to this. This is what he says. The answer can't be, and this is brilliant, the answer can't be just be less consumeristic. The whole opposite side has become a consumer identity uh, too. Oh, that was my own notes there. Think of Curb, blah, blah, blah. I was going to tell that story. You guys watch Curb Your Enthusiasm? Am I the only one? Is a pastor allowed to admit he watches Curb? I do. It's funny. There's an episode with Woody Harrelson where his whole thing is like, oh, I don't drink cream that comes from the grocery store. And then he catches Larry drinking cream. But his whole like, identity is like, I'm the guy that doesn't drink cream. You know. Anyway, I forgot to cut that out of my notes. The quote continues, we need a third pathway not to have our identities built on what we own or by what we don't own. When our identity comes from Christ, we are free to own, but not driven by it. We are also free to give away in generosity and not own stuff, but not for self, 
self-righteousness sake, but for love. So this book was not great. I went through the whole book to mine it for quotes and stuff, and uh, I wouldn't recommend you read it. I don't know. I'll give you... This is the brilliant part, though. This thought was brilliant. This is what he says. The answer can't be, oh, just don't be an American consumer, right? Because then what happens is you've just flipped it, and now your idol is in not being an American consumer, right? People with affluenza define themselves by the things that they own. I am my things. But when we swing the pendulum the other way, all we're doing is now I'm defining myself by the things I don't own. I am not my, you know, I'm the things I don't have. But at the root, it's the same problem. Material stuff is the what we're using to come up with our identity and worth. And the gospel offers a third pathway. When Jesus died and rose again and gathered his people, he gave them a new identity. When, you're cre- when you were saved, you were recreated into something new. And your identity is this, that you're a child of God adopted into his family. And that builds an entire new perspective into your life. And because of that, you can now have a completely different relationship with your stuff, with your money, with your investment accounts. We can enjoy stuff as a gift from God because he made creation. Right? He made this stuff for us to enjoy, and we should enjoy it. But by enjoying it, we don't have to define ourselves by it. We're free from being ruled by it. We can see all of our stuff and our money with a completely different perspective. Um, I remember years ago seeing a video on YouTube or something of a football player who took it under his, uh, like, made it his mission to teach younger football players about compound interest. Okay? Because the amount of NFL players that go bankrupt within 10 years of leaving the NFL is insane. It's like half or something. I don't know the actual number. So this guy was like, I'm going to teach these kids about compound interest, you know, where the interest, keep, you know, what a compound interest is, right? And so one of the things he would tell them, okay, he would go to the car dealership with them. Okay, this car is $20,000 now, but what you're really doing is you're spending $65,000 down the road. And he would run the math with them. In 20 years, are you going to wish you had spent $65,000 on this car? Right? Oh, no. Okay, I'm not going to get the car kind of thing. The big idea is um, you think it's cheap now and you can afford it, but that's only because you have no perspective on what you're really spending. And the more you understand about compound interest, the more it's going to help you from reckless spending. When we live our lives ruled by money and stuff, we're looking right in front of us and we're forgetting about sort of eternal compound interest, right? We're forgetting about eternal perspective. And your identity as a child of God means that you're going to spend eternity. Think about that. Eternity. That's a very long time in heaven, wishing, in the new heavens and earth, wishing you had had more perspective and that you had spent more money on the things that matter. Your identity can't be on the stuff that you have here. Our identity should be on, what am I doing that I'm going to care about when I'm dead? Right? What am I doing with my money, with my time, with my energy, with how I love people? What am I doing that I'm going to care about when I'm dead? All right. Our church is here today because people think like this. Because this is a real thing that people do in a real way that people think. Um, DPC, the church that I left uh, in the mission district, when they hired the new guy and then I left, they gave me a severance package when they didn't have to. They were like, hey, we're going to take care of you for six months on your way out till you get your feet on the ground and figure out this church plant thing. Right? That was a group of people getting together saying, hey, we're going to help this guy. We're going to spend money on this church plant. 
Um, the, the EFC church, right, who is renting this building for us and who's given us a ton of money where you guys came from, right, has been super generous. This is people who really think like this. We're going to invest in this new church plant for kingdom reasons. Christ Church has given us a ton of money. Um, we have one pretty big donor uh, who gives us a ton of money, like one gigantic donor who's given us a bunch of money. Um, when we did our first round of the church, uh, the what's it called? Matching grant. Um, one of my friends that I only kind of know said, hey, I want to take you out to lunch. I said, okay, cool. I thought he was going to give me 100 bucks for the matching grant, you know? He was like, here you go. Hands me a check for five grand, I think it was. I was like, whoa, this is a kingdom person. So um, first off, I just want to say, I'm, I'm grateful that people think like this because our church would not have survived COVID without people who have this mindset. Now, let's apply this, though, to ourselves personally. So first, two things I want you to think about. The first is funding the porch. Again, we have the TBC Stratum grant. I think we need like 10K more. Um, there's been some checks that got sent in, so when you see the little bar online, that's not the whole story. Uh, they don't put the checks into that little bar. But anyway, uh, you know, we need to raise money. We need to move as a church towards like growing and then becoming self-sustaining, right? That's, that's the goal. Um, but I don't want to be the pastor that says, Jesus talks about money, and that's why you should give to my church. So we're going to move on to the actual importance. Although, I mean, let's be honest. We need to talk about money as a church. as a thing, right? It's not the whole thing, but it's part of what we do. Um, all right, here's what, here's what I really want to get to, though. This is how we'll end. I want you to leave with this impression. All those things I just talked about. Don't be defined by your stuff, and uh, be defined by your status as a child of God and how that impacts eternity and money. I want you to take all of that and see how important that is to our Pabst Blue Ribbon Pathway, right? So we pray for people. We ask them about their lives. Here's the important one. We bless them in ways that nobody else would. We share our personal stories with them, and then we talk to them about the gospel. Pabst Pathway, right? Okay, the B there. We bless them in ways nobody else would. Daryl Bach, who's a commentator and a professor um, at a seminary, he said this. I love this. When possessions are the goal, people become pawns. All right, let me say that again. When possessions are the goal, people become pawns. So if your life is all about how much stuff I can get, your relationship with your neighbors and your friends is going to be, what can I get from them? And as soon as I can't get anything from them, they're gone. It's done. It's over. They're, they're useless to me. This is why rich, famous people can't trust anybody, right? Um, again, back to this crap movie that I watched about these rich kids. Uh, one of the guys in that movie was saying, one of the things people don't get about being this rich, people just assume you're happy. He's basically like, we're all miserable and lonely because you can't trust anybody. Are they just here because everybody's just using me for money, right? People know when we treat them like that, right? It's such a great insight from Bach. When people, when possessions are the goal, people become pawns. When your life is about stuff, you can't possibly love people unconditionally. It's not possible. You can only love them as they benefit you, but that's not really love. But if people are the goal, then your stuff becomes the pawn. And that's the biblical perspective. As we think about what God has done for us and our story in light of how long we're going to be part of the kingdom of God for all of eternity, our stuff is just something that we can use for his kingdom. The stuff becomes the pawn in how I can love people. Man, imagine a church that was defined, filled with people who were defined by that kind of radical generosity, where the, the point of church was not just to keep the doors open, although, all right, we got to keep the doors open, but like, how can we be radical in the way that we love our neighbors and our friends?
That's the kind of church that has an impact. So I'm going to end with this. Let me leave you with two questions. And then we're going to turn the heater back on. All right, boy, just like... Uh, yeah, go flip the switch while I ask these last two questions. First, do you struggle with placing your identity in stuff and money? All the stuff that's affluence, the stuff we talked about today, is that something you struggle with? If it is, either way, how can you tell? Right? If I ask you that question, then my follow-up would be, well, how do you know that that's? What would you say? The second question is this. How can you do that PAP stuff and be radically generous to your neighbors? Like, specifically, like, what is something I can do that says I'm going to use my stuff to help somebody else? Money? Um, you know, I don't know. Whatever it is, money, stuff, something. How can I use that? my personal wealth, to help somebody who is in need. Right? If all of us this week, think about that. I don't know whether they're 15 something people, 17, 18, I don't know. I'm not counting. But if all of us in here today, this little group said, this week, I'm going to use my stuff to help somebody else. All of a sudden now, 15 or 20 people just got helped for the kingdom of God. That's pretty cool. Now, what if we did that every week, over and over and over again? That's where the impact of our church comes in. So think in your mind, how do we be specific about this? What's something I can actually do? Be practical. All right, let's pray.